Before we dive into God's word, would you just bow your heads with me one more time? I want to just pray for God's blessing. Father, as we approach your word today, we recognize that you command us to not, not grow slack in the reading of your word together, that we would learn from it in teaching and preaching. And Lord, we know that you want to speak to us this morning. We also recognize, Father, that there are, that there are influences in our lives that are contrary to your word And right now, before we even begin, we want to submit those things to you. Father, we desire that our lives would be shaped and conformed after your will as expressed through the word of God and through your son, Jesus. And we ask that you'd help us in the humility of our hearts to be able to receive the word implanted this morning, that it might bear fruit and it would grow and increase in our lives. Lord, we pray for the places where your word confronts our worldview, our mistaken notions, or the hardness of our hearts. May we not stiffen our necks and become stubborn and resist, but may we humble ourselves and receive what you have to say. Repenting and moving forward in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Well, last week we began a journey, a summer journey together where we're stopping at some of the must-see spots in life, and our landmark last week was parenting, and this week we're moving on to money. Obviously, if you're going to take a trip, you need a budget, don't you? You need to know how much money you're going to spend on this trip, lest you find yourself abandoned on the side of a road somewhere, having run out of gas. You don't want that because of the cost of gas these days, for sure. And you also want to make sure that you're spending your money on things that matter, making memories that matter, and not just, you know, on trinkets in the gift shop they funnel you through on the way out, right? So you want to spend your resources on things that matter. Let me just drop the the, kind of the, the travel lingo for a moment and just speak more directly. Money is a big deal in our lives, isn't it? It causes anxiety. It fills our time. It consumes our minds. It shifts our goals. It causes arguments. It breaks up families. And sometimes it even starts wars. That's not to say that money is all bad. We do need money, but money reveals our character and what's really going on in our hearts. And sometimes when we have a lot of money, it has the potential to magnify the flaws in our character. When we have only a little money, it has the potential of revealing how thin our faith really is. Jesus taught a lot about possessions and money and our attitude toward them because he knows that money is such a big deal in our lives. It consumes so much of our thoughts and our attention. It has such an outsized impact in our lives compared to other topics and other ideas. And it has the potential to compete with God in our hearts and in our lives and so he wants, us, he wants to teach us how to think about money, how to think about the possessions we have in light of the good news of Jesus. Now, remember, as we're talking about these topics this summer, we're not just asking, hey, what are some great tips for parenting? Or what are some great tips for how to spend your money? We're not doing that. Instead, we're saying, what does the gospel, the good news that Jesus came that he died for our sin on the cross, that God raised him from the dead on the third day, that he ascended to the right hand of God where he reigns, and that he is returning to judge the world, and on that day, those who put their faith in him will be saved in the ultimate sense. What does that good news have to say about these important landmarks like money in the journeys of our lives? What does the gospel say about money? And so let's begin by reading Matthew 6, 25 to 33. 
You're probably familiar with this passage, but Jesus there says this. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, that is people who don't know God, seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus makes it sound so simple, doesn't he? I mean, to continue the road trip metaphor, When you run out of gas on the side of the road and you don't have money to fill the tank, it doesn't feel so simple anymore. He makes it sound simple, but it doesn't always feel simple internally when we're thinking about money. Jesus points us to birds and flowers and he tells us not to have our attention consumed by material possessions, but it doesn't always feel that easy. He says to seek God's kingdom and righteousness first and all these things will be added and we think I'll serve God and put him first and do his will once I'm settled and once I'm comfortable. But that assumes that you live in a world in which God is not the sustainer and won't take care of you, where faith is just an afterthought and not the foundation. And the Bible tells us that's not the real world. You're assuming a world in which God is not holding you up, but the Bible says the real world is a world in which God created everything, including you. And he upholds you by the word of his power through his son, Jesus Christ. He holds you and everything else together, and that he is the provider of every need, and that those who will trust him, he will provide for their needs. He'll take care of them. This is the worldview the Bible gives us about money. But if we say, hey, I'll put God first later, what we're saying is actually I and money are the foundation and source of life, and God is an afterthought. And if we take into account not only what he spoke, but who was speaking, when Jesus talks to us about anxiety concerning money and the birds and the, and the flowers, his words get even more powerful. He said this, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is, and is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? But this is the same Jesus who bore your sin when he died on the cross so that you could be right with God. His death on your behalf proves God's concern and his love for your life. And the Apostle Paul asked a question in Romans 8 that reminds me of Jesus' question from Matthew 6.30, but he takes it a little bit further and he includes Jesus himself as proof of God's love and assurance of his provision. He asks this, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
and all these things will be added to you. The gospel liberates us from a life of dominated by worry over money and resources and teaches us to trust God with our resources and to put him first and to trust him to take care of us. You need gospel financial goals. Listen, I'm not gonna be teaching you about investing this morning, all right? What I wanna talk to you about is what does it look like for me to put God first through my finances because of what he's done through Jesus. You need gospel financial goals. And prior to Matthew 6, 25 to 33, Jesus used three images to teach us about money and they give us three kind of diagnostic questions we can ask in setting financial goals. And the first diagnostic question is from Matthew 6, 19 to 21, where Jesus says this, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So here's the first question, where's your treasure now we could go into all the background details of this passage and, and what coins were made of at the time and the metals that could rust and the garments and tapestries and how they could be eaten by moths and how people had clay homes and thieves could dig through there and get to their, their money and their possessions or how they would sometimes bury their treasures in a field. Jesus told other parables about that. And if somebody found them, then they would steal them. We could talk about all that background, but really the points are obvious. The point that Jesus was making is, is pretty straightforward. The things we collect on earth are susceptible to robbery and corruption. You can make it titanium or whatever you want. It's still susceptible to corruption or robbery. And if we somehow manage to preserve them, they're all going to be burned up in God's judgment of the world when Christ returns. And so they are all extremely temporary. And so Jesus commands us to start laying up treasures in some place where Thieves can't break in and where moth and rust can't destroy and he tells us to lay up treasure in heaven. But how do you do that? How do you lay up treasure in heaven? How do you move your bank account there? Well, treasure in heaven includes the rewards and responsibilities that Jesus says are going to be given to those who are faithful with the possessions and responsibilities God gives to them here on earth. And Jesus describes in some of his parables the master of a house giving resource and money to various servants in his household. And the servant that wasted that opportunity was punished, but the servants who were faithful to carry out the master's instructions were rewarded. And in Matthew 25, 21, Jesus famously says, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of the master. The apostle Paul wrote, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. Remember, God's coming to judge the earth. If you've laid up treasures here on earth, they will be Gone. They will be literally burned up. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has 
built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In other words, the things that you do in investing in God's kingdom, laying up treasure in heaven, those things will survive as reward in the future. It's apparent that there are going to be various kinds of rewards in heaven based on how we handle the responsibilities and opportunities that God gives us here on earth. We don't know exactly how that will look like. I can't tell you if I give this much, what kind of reward. I don't know. I don't know. But the Bible makes clear that there will be rewards in heaven, and those rewards are intended to motivate us toward faithfulness with what God provides us on earth. But consider another kind of reward that Jesus mentions right at the end of Matthew 25, 21. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of your master. There is treasure in heaven that we only get small tastes of right now, but will be fully realized when Christ returns or when we die. Joy, peace, unspoiled fellowship with others, and unity, the undiluted experience of love, work, and responsibility without growing tired or feeling bored or disappointed in it. The unbroken presence of God. These are the rewards that heaven holds for those who are faithful. These are the treasures we are to seek and to store up. But in order to store up these kinds of treasures, we need to recognize the link between our treasures and our hearts so that we don't become hypocrites and deceive ourselves. The Bible teacher D.A. Carson wrote about this passage, we think about our treasures. We're drawn toward our treasures. We fret about our treasures. We measure other things and other people by our treasures. This is so painfully true that a person who honestly examines himself can pretty well discover what his real treasures are simply by studying his deepest desires. Where is your treasure? What do your deepest desires reveal about its location? What do your spending habits reveal about what you value most? What do your worries, anxieties, and fretting reveal about what you think is the most important and the location of your treasure? If your heart is kept with earthly treasures, it too will be stolen and corrupted. Isn't that the implication of what Jesus says? He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And he's told us, if you lay up treasure on earth, it will be corrupted, it will rust, and it will be stolen. So if your heart's with those treasures, what happens to your heart when your treasure's corrupted and stolen? It's broken, it's stolen, and it's corrupted as well. But if your heart is in heaven, it can't be taken because it is secure with God. This is, why, this is why Jesus told the rich young man who came to him and wanted to know how to have eternal life to sell everything, give to the poor, and come follow him. This man's treasure, his heart rather, was with his treasure here on earth. And Jesus' command revealed to this young man where his heart really was, without any question. The young man walked away, unable to follow Jesus, disappointed, but he walked away, why? Because his heart was in his treasure here on earth. 
because that's what he valued most, more than following Christ. The only way for him to relocate his heart and the reason Jesus told him, sell everything, give to the poor and come follow me, was because the only way for him to relocate his heart was for him to relocate his treasure. Where is your treasure? The next diagnostic question for establishing gospel financial goals is how's your vision? which comes from Matthew 6, to 23. It says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus is not making a scientific statement here about how eyes work. He doesn't imagine that eyes actually produce light or something like that. Rather, his imagery describes how one's attitude toward money affects or sometimes infects your entire life. For most of us, sight is maybe the most used sense in kind of discerning our world or for taking in information about the world, and so we often use it as a metaphor for how we interpret meaning or events in life. So we'll say things like, well, that's how I see things anyway when we're trying to relay our perspective on some subject. And so Jesus is talking here about your perspective and the context makes certain that he's talking about how you think about money, how you view money, what's your perspective about money and how your perspective on money affects your entire life. It's interesting to note that the word translated healthy was often used to describe simplicity or sincerity. If a person is seeing double images, we know something's wrong with their eyesight or with their, with their ability to, to take in the information their eyes are bringing to their brain. That's not healthy, it's not good. And if you think you can keep your eyes on Jesus and on money, you're seeing double and you are deceived. And this is what Jesus meant when he said, if the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? If you think you can have one eye on Jesus and one eye on serving money and that is healthy and that is light and that's how you're going to lead your life, your darkness is the worst possible kind of darkness because while you're in the darkness, you think you're in the light. And you don't even know you're in the darkness. You think you're in the right. So you won't try to get out. You won't accept help from those who offer. If Jesus comes and says to you, sell your possessions and come follow me, you won't listen because you think you already are, even though you're not. D.A. Carson again said, the person's darkness is greatest who thinks his darkness is light. An opposite, a singular or a healthy eye, healthy vision was a bad eye or an evil eye. And this was a common ancient metaphor used to describe greed or coveting. If your eye, which looks around and takes in information, it judges the world, it determines what's right and wrong, if it's pursuing continually uh, those things that, that are of this world, just the desires of the flesh and the desires of the world, then your life is going to be made miserable in the pursuit of materialistic happiness. Happiness. And since it was Jesus who said this, it's, it's not at all surprising that it's a really appropriate metaphor because it's not just a metaphor. Our eyes are often looking around to discover what more we can or we think we should have for ourselves. It's your eyes who see your neighbor's car and think, I should get one of those. I deserve, I work harder than he does. I should have one of those cars. It's your eyes who see those cool shoes, that cute blouse, those beautiful earrings, that sharp jacket, and even though you don't need it, you think, 
I need one of those. I deserve one of those. It's your eyes that stare at the computer screen, filling up your digital shopping cart with items that you'll probably never use. It's your eyes that see other houses or boats or that new technology or phone that you just have to have. And when you're seeing double, you won't even recognize when you've moved from need to want. And you'll be blind to the fact that you're no longer actually following Jesus. You've actually moved on to idolatry through greed. The journey of life requires healthy vision. You have to be able to see Jesus clearly. Do you see the world through the lens of faith in God's ability and promise to provide or through the lens of covetous and greed? Are your eyes set on the things of the earth or are they fixed on things above where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, where Jesus is ruling right now? What do your desires reveal about the health of your eyes? How's your vision? That's Jesus' second diagnostic question. And the final diagnostic question is from Matthew 6, 24, and it's who's your master? And since the previous question had to do with not seeing double, it should come as little surprise what Jesus says here, and I think you'll see immediately the connection between the two. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And as the diagnostic question regarding sight just revealed, it's easy to be deceived about our allegiances and where they actually lie. And so Jesus puts this in the most straightforward terms possible. You cannot go halvesies between God and money. You can't split your life up that way. It will not work. Jesus wasn't saying that money is evil. He's saying that serving money is evil. The love of money will try and compete with God for the allegiance of your heart. And if you're not conscious and intentional about trusting him, it's probably going to win. It is going to compete in your life with your, for your allegiance with God And you as a believer must always make sure that God is the master. You should make no mistake, if your hopes, your desires, your worries, your pursuits are all tied to money, you're a slave to money. You think money is your slave. You think you own your money. But God says, no, actually, you're owned by your money. All of your life is going to be determined by trying to gain more. You're obeying its demands. Your future is tied to its will and how you can connive and try to figure out what's going to be best for me. It dictates your schedule. It compromises your attitude. You're a slave, but you're a slave to something that can never make you happy and can't actually meet your deepest needs. Think about it. You could pursue money and fail in that pursuit and you'll still be a slave to money because you'll be filled with anxiety about it. But money itself can't secure or meet your needs. But God can. He created you. He can meet your needs in the present and he can guarantee your future. In fact, he already sent his son Jesus to do this, to give you an assurance That even if life is hard now, he has secured you forever and ever if your faith is in him and you've surrendered your life to him. So if you're going to serve something, and you will, you're going to, 
That's really not a question for most of us. If you're going to live a meaningful life, you're going to have a goal. You're going to be pursuing something. And what you pursue is what you worship. And so if you're going to worship something, if you're going to serve something, Jesus says, serve the one who actually created it all and can actually provide for your needs and who actually loves you. Because money is a difficult slave master. It'll work you to the bone and never satisfy. It'll leave you anxious and worried about the future, even when you should have more than enough, you think, to supply your needs. But God, even in moments when it seems like you have nothing, is able to provide for you. And he is a good father and will take care of you. Submit to the Lord, who's not only capable of supplying your needs on earth, but he's already shown His level of concern for you by providing for your eternal life. Jesus told his disciples that whoever wanted to save his own life would lose it, but that whoever would lose his life for Jesus' sake would find it. That's the gospel. And since money is part of life, then it applies to our money, our resources, and our attitudes toward resources as well. There's a really dramatic image of this in the Old Testament. God was planning to destroy two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, because they'd been incredibly wicked. And people often think about the sins of these cities in sexual terms, but Ezekiel 16, 49 says this about them. It says, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. In other words, Sodom was full of greed. But there was one righteous family that lived in Sodom, the family of a man named Lot, and God sent angels to escort him and his family out of this city before it was destroyed. And the angels gave very explicit, very clear instructions to Lot and his whole family that they were to leave everything behind, and they were to flee the city And that as they fled, they were not under any circumstances to look back. They weren't to turn around and see what was going on. They were to fix their eyes forward and just run out of that place. And as they left Lot and his family, Lot's wife turned around and looked. And God immediately turned her into a pillar of salt. Dry and useless. Why? Was it because she was curious about what was going on behind her? No, it's not. It's because when she turned to look what was going on, she revealed where her heart was. She turned around to look what was happening to her treasure that she had to leave behind. She had double vision. She was supposed to be looking this way to get out of the place, and yet she turned around to see what was happening back there. She, when she turned around, she revealed exactly who her master was. And even though her location was about to change, God knew her master hadn't really changed. She was still a slave to all the greed and all the covetous that she had adopted in her heart when she lived in the culture of Sodom. And when she turned around, she revealed exactly where her heart was. And do you know what was happening in Sodom at the moment? God was raining down sulfur. So is it any real surprise that since Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, that the moment she turned around and revealed where her treasure was in a place that was being turned into sulfur, 
that she suddenly was transformed into that same thing as well. And the Bible says there's a day coming when God will come and rescue us from this world, isn't there? And that on that day, we'll be taken out to be with Jesus forever. And that our eyes will be fixed on him. And you know what? I don't think that anybody who's going to be taken on that day is going to be looking back because our eyes will have already been set. But metaphorically speaking, there are some people who believe that they're going to be going on that day and they'll suddenly find out that they won't. Because they'll, in that moment, the treasure of their heart will be revealed. That it was here on earth. That they valued the things of this earth so fully that when the time came to leave, God left them where their treasure was. While everybody else was going to where their treasure is. Believer, let's live in such a way with our finances, our resources, our attitudes toward money, that we indicate to the world and to our Heavenly Father our trust in Him, that our values are not in the things of this world, but that we are laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. We need gospel financial goals. And the gospel doesn't lead us to give a little bit to Jesus. It leads us to give Him all and to make Him the purpose and the reason for why we do what we do including what we do with our resources and the images Jesus gives us to help us ask these probing questions so that we don't deceive ourselves are where's your treasure, how's your vision, and who is your master? Of course, if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, it probably seems pretty funny to even think about giving or laying up treasure in a place you can't see in this fashion. I mean, I'm sure that you've thought about giving, thought about giving to some good causes. Maybe you were asked yesterday when you were, you know, at the grocery store if you'd like to give, you know, 50 cents to some cause and you're such a good person that you did or whatever. Yay you. Or you saw that commercial on TV and they said, you can text to give right now. That's wonderful. You know, I'm glad you did that. And so you've thought about giving a little bit here and there off on the side a little bit of the extra that you have. Maybe even you've thought about giving to the church. Maybe you grew up in a church, you've given some to the church, but you've always thought about your resources like, I've got my resources and I'll give a little bit over here. But can I just share something with you? That's not how a relationship with God works and it's not how salvation works. If you think that you're gonna be saved because you've given a marginal amount of your income to good causes over the course of your life, there's going to be a day of awakening for you when Christ returns and he will reveal in no uncertain terms that your treasure was always here, even if your mouth didn't always say so, even if you gave lip service to God. And I want to encourage you right now to stop thinking about your, your eternity in terms of being a good person. I paid a little bit here. And think of it in this way. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He said, if anyone wants to save his life, he will lose it. But if anyone will lose his life for my sake, he will save it. You see, the gospel that God offers is not a give a little bit here, give a little on the fringe over here, give a marginal amount over here. It is give everything. It's all God's. And it's not that you're giving him some big dividend or something like that. It's that you 
come to realize that what's happened in my life isn't that I did a few bad things and I need somebody to kind of coat over those for me, but that what has happened in my life is that I've been in rebellion against God who created me, wants to sustain me, and sent his son to die for me, but I have rejected him and I have run from him. I've thrown that in his face. I didn't want anything to do with him. I have been an affront to God, a rebellious person against God. And so it's not like I did a boo-boo. It's like I've offended the creator and sustainer of the universe who loved me enough to send his son to die for me. And you put him off. That's your need this morning. And you don't fix that need by saying, you know what, I think I'll put 50 cents in the offering plate or I'll donate to the animal shelter. That won't cut it. The only thing that will cut your offense against God is the fact that he loved you enough to send his son Jesus to die on a cross for you. And now he invites you into salvation. But you don't get in there because you gave a little bit here and you gave a little bit there. You get in, you become part of when you put your faith in Jesus and you die. You die to yourself. You die to your rebellion against God, to throwing his salvation in his face, to pretending like he wasn't there, to acting like he didn't matter, to pretending like you were in control. You die to all of that. It dies. And then the miraculous thing is that God brings you through that death. And just like he did with his son, punching a hole out the backside of death, he brings you through to new life in Jesus. So the life you live now is not the life you lived before. Instead, you have resurrection life. You have eternal life through God and through faith in Jesus. Today, if you don't have faith in Christ, if you don't have a relationship with God by believing Jesus, I plead with you that you would not leave here thinking, oh yeah, I went to church. Oh good, I put a little in the offering. Oh great, I gave a little to the animal shelter. That does you no good. You'll die and go to hell. Only faith in Jesus will save you. Only trusting him with your entire life will redeem you. Would you close your eyes for just a moment? If you don't have that kind of faith in Jesus, but you're, you're feeling something internally saying, you've got to respond today, that's the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to you. If you've never confessed faith in, in Jesus as your Savior, confessing your sin, believing that God raised him from the dead, and you somehow strangely feel compelled this morning that you need to do that, you need to be right with God today, that's not a chance, that's, that's God speaking to your heart this morning. And I would, I would just encourage you, don't ignore that. Listen, I can't tell you the words that are right to save you. It's not raising a hand. It's, it's, it's none of that. It's faith in Christ and him alone that can save you. But today I want to help you express that, especially if you're wondering how do I do that. I want to help you express that you need God's forgiveness. You believe in Jesus and you want to be made new by his mercy today. And so if that's you, you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, I'm going to ask you to do something bold, simple. The act itself doesn't save you, but I just want to pray with you. You don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, but you want to, you want to put your faith in him today. I'm going to ask if you would, where you are, just stand up if that's you. You don't have that relationship with God through Jesus. Nobody has to be looking around. Nobody needs to be. You just stand up, and we want to pray with you this morning. I want to lead you, and how do I express that faith this morning? That's all. Is there anybody like that? Thank you. Anybody else? You want relationship with God today. You need to know his forgiveness and salvation. I'm not going to wait much longer. Is there anybody else? We're going to pray this morning, and again, my words don't save you. 
And so I'd encourage you as I pray, you make these words yours. You pray along and you, you confess to Lord, the Lord your need for him and you request from him his mercy and forgiveness. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you. Father, we confess that we've run from you, we've rebelled against you. I confess, Lord, that I've been far from you and I've ignored you and that that's no small thing. I pray that you would forgive me today, not only for individual sins, but for my attitude against you and my hardness of heart. Today I've heard the good news and I believe it. I believe Jesus died for me so that I could be made right and my sin forgiven. And I believe that you raised him from the dead so that you can give me new life and God, I need new life today. Would you help me? I'm unable to save myself, so I call out to you, please save me through Jesus. I believe in him. I believe in his new life, and I'm asking you to make me new by faith. I trust you today. I don't trust my bad feelings. I don't trust my guilt. I don't trust my own abilities. But today, I put my trust in Jesus, who already died and already rose. And so I know by trusting him, I have salvation. I thank you for that salvation. And I thank you today, Lord, for making me new. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated, and if you prayed that with us this morning and stood, I want to encourage you when the service is over, there are going to be some prayer partners here at the front, people who would love to speak with you about what does it mean to follow Jesus and pray with you and give you some resources for how to do that. And I'd encourage you before you leave, please come and sp speak with one of them so that you can understand where do I go. Believers, I want to talk to you for just a moment longer if I can to kind of bring some of this down to some practical level. You need to evaluate your financial goals according to the gospel. And I want to encourage you to consider your attitude toward money. Do you have an attitude of generosity or are you slow to part with your resources? Do you get anxious about money often or are you growing in your ability to trust your heavenly father to supply your needs? And I want to encourage you to take some simple practical steps. We talk about these often, but I think that they are important. Practical steps that we have as believers to put into practice the things that we talk about when we say we want to trust God and put him first. The first is tithing. Tithing is the Christian practice of giving the first 10% of your income for use in God's kingdom. And we usually encourage people to do this by giving to their local church. And so if you call this church home, we encourage you to do it here. If you call another church home, please do it there. Give to that ministry. And I know that sounds intimidating. And to some people, it's kind of a gasp moment. Like, that's ridiculous. How could I possibly give 10%? But here's the point of tithing. I want you to think about this. It has biblical precedent. And it's significant enough to make you think about what you're doing. If we said, would you give 0.5%, you go, I guess, I mean, no big deal. But 10%, now you're stopping to think about this. What does that even mean? How am I going to work that out? So it stops, to, it pauses to make you think, can I do this? Should I do this? And what does it mean if I do this? And then from there it reminds you, oh, you know what? That 10% doesn't belong to me. And that 10% doesn't belong to God. All 100% belongs to God, and the 10% becomes a reminder, oh, everything belongs to him, and I can give it to him. And really, this is just the starting point for Christians. I know it's a big starting point for some, but it is the starting point. Because the next way I'd encourage you to set gospel financial goals is to give to missions. This is so important. This church, above any of the figures that I just showed you earlier, on an annual basis gives, for the last several years at least, just over $500,000 in addition to any number you saw earlier 
to missions, to various missions organizations, to missionaries serving around the world. And to do that, we encourage people to give to missions regularly through the church. We, con- we contribute together and accomplish more together. And I encourage you to give specifically to the church. I know you could go out and you could find individual missionaries to give to and, and organizations to give to. That's wonderful. But think about giving to the church a little bit like giving to a heavenly mutual fund, right? You can take your little bit and give it to one missionary or you can invest into what the church does and when you do that, you'll be literally supporting hundreds of boots on the ground missionaries, outreaches to people in Moldova we just gave money to, to to fund a poor, uh, an outreach to those who are in poverty, disaster relief work around the world through Convoy of Hope, media ministry into closed countries like into China where you can't just go and stand on the street corner and they can't just have church like we have it all the time. So radio broadcasts are going in there and we support that or through digging water wells in Africa, saving women and children out of prostitution in India, college campus ministry across Europe and Africa, and much, much more. It's a worthwhile gospel investment to invest resources in missions through the local church and finally I want to encourage you to give above beyond and beyond tithes and even missions in other offerings and right now you know the big one is our renovation it's on our radar and that's vision giving it's looking ahead and saying hey I see I'm a partner and a part of what God is doing I don't think of this as just, yeah, I'm sending money off to some other place, but I'm giving so that we can together accomplish God's purposes here in the Pioneer Valley, and we want to see his mission and his kingdom increase, and so I'm giving to that. And so if you haven't yet taken the chance, grab one of our renovation packets out of the hospitality counter. Mr. Bill can help you find one if you, if you don't see it immediately. And I just encourage you to read through it. It's got a booklet on generosity in there, and, and I would encourage you even to commit to giving over the next three years to this project so that we can see it through to completion. Now, I know that sometimes people complain that the church talks a lot about money, but honestly, everybody thinks a lot about money. And so why would we not expect that Jesus and the church have something to say about that? Wouldn't we expect that Jesus has something important to teach us? The gospel does have something significant to say. It says, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Let's keep our goals straight by continually asking, where's my treasure, how's my vision, and who's my master? Heavenly Father, today we thank you so much that you are the provider of every need. And we thank you, Lord, that you take care of us as we trust you. We ask, Lord, that you would help us as we continue in this walk of faith, that we would not grow sidetracked by what the world is constantly putting in front of us to prioritize, but that instead, Lord, our faith would be firm in you so that even in times of want, we would be able to give with assurance that you are able to meet every need so that as we continue to give, you'll supply that we might give more abundantly to your work and to your people. We love you, Lord. We thank you for that, and we pray that you would reveal in our own hearts, as scary as it might be, over the coming days, where our treasure is and where our hearts really lie. And Lord, should we find that we've got double vision, give us the softness of heart to repent and to make the changes we need to in obedience to your word. In Jesus' name we pray and we believe. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being with us this morning. 
If you gave your life to Christ this morning and stood, prayer partners, please come. And we would invite you, if you stood, to to respond to salvation. Please come and speak with one of our prayer partners. Otherwise, we'll see you either tonight or Wednesday. Until then, go in God's grace and in his peace.